band is singing that chorus with us now that you've been reviewed on it. I found the happy side of life. Let's all join in together. Ready? entire song service will go directly from one song to the other uh, there won't be any any waiting around or announcing or looking in the hymn book or anything you'll just sing off of this and all these are songs you know at least you know the melodies and the words are here to prompt you so we're going to go from the top of the sheet to the bottom at this time and uh, you join in and enjoy the singing
Tonight, right after our service, will be a college fellowship here at the church. All right. And there's also a nominating committee meeting in Fellowship Hall and a building committee meeting. And senior adults that are going to Eureka Springs are going to meet in Fellowship Classroom, not Fellowship Hall. Um, right here, the first room on the left as you go down this hall. Once a month, the men have their prayer breakfast here at the church, and this is the time for that. This Monday at 7 o'clock in the morning, they have some great bacon and eggs. That is incorrect. It's going to be at the Holiday Inn. The bulletin is wrong. On Monday, it will be at the Holiday Inn. Okay. When, when will our next one be? Do you know when? Next week. Uh, we were a week ahead. Great. Day camp is coming up Monday. How many of you kids are going to be here at day camp tomorrow? Well, great. I'll be here, too. We're going to be here and then go out to Carl Albert Park, come back here for lunch, and go back out to the park. Be spending all day there, and the youth that will be going on our trip to Oregon are prepared to lead you in some Mission Vacation Bible School materials that will fit in real well with that. Cost is $2, and a sack lunch is included in that. June the 15th, Peggy Johnson is going to begin aerobic rhythms. Now, that's an easy one to say, a rubber rhythms. Uh, June the 15th, going to meet twice a week, and you have your choice whether to come twice or once a week. It's all detailed for you there on the back of the bulletin. If you just tear the bottom portion of that off and place it in the offering plate. Pastor, come and welcome our guests. Isn't it great to be here tonight? And it's a great... Do you like that song, kind of song service? If you really like it, you know, you need to let us know. That kind of enthusiasm is, uh, <laughs> we're just underwhelmed, aren't we? By that. <laughs> you like that kind of song service? I do. Amen. In fact, that's uh, what I, I suggested we do that tonight. I like to just kind of sing right off a song sheet. I sure am glad you're here tonight. You've come to the right place. I would imagine that there's not any other church in this part of the country to have this many people on Sunday night worship. It's full house tonight. Boy, we're glad you're here. And we have some guests that we want to recognize. And the way we do that, the best way we know how to do that is to take you by the hand and shake that hand and say, we're glad you're here. Welcome. Howdy. You've come to the right place. Would you do that now? You just remain seated if you're a guest and our folks want to stand. Greet you. right down in the front row. That's my, that's my amen section right there. And they told me before church that we're going to sit there, Pastor, and we're going to be praying for you tonight. Not going to wiggle, not going to move. Isn't that right, fellas? Is that what you told me? It isn't. Oh. <laughs> we're sure glad you're here tonight. This is, uh, this is the place to be on Sunday night. You'll want to You'll want a uh, worksheet if you don't have one already. I don't want to go through what we went through last week. 
So if you have one of the, not a song sheet, you have to start bringing your briefcase to put all this stuff in. <laughs> the song sheet is the long one, and the other orange one is the sermon sheet. But I found a few months ago that people get a lot more out of what the preacher says if they can write it down and take it home with them. And the kids make nice little airplanes besides, and it gives them something to do. <laughs> Come on, Jeff. Uh, one thing I noticed, uh, this is more taxing on the voice than the youth choir and I have been singing since 4.30. So I'm about to lose my voice, which is my wife will tell you it's kind of unusual for me to lose my voice. Uh, while we're singing this hymn, we're going to be preparing for the evening offering. We also ask that you pass these to the left and stack them down the left side of the pew so that we can pick these up. Uh, once we did this in the past, and uh, one of our custodians who wasn't a member of this church picked them all up and threw them away. So we're going to get these picked up tonight. <laughs> pass those to the left. Let's turn to hymn number 472 and stand as we sing one verse and prepare for our offering. 472.
think I'd rather be the pastor of, of this group of young people than anybody anywhere in the world. I really mean that. This group and that group right over there. I just, I just feel good today. I uh, <laughs> feel like bragging on folks today for some reason. That is really something when you can pastor a church. Yes, sir? You'd have to really feel good to wear a yellow suit, wouldn't you? That's right. <laughs> now, contrary to what you've been hearing, I am not Big Bird. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I tell you what, I don't think there is probably a, a church in the um, state of Oklahoma in, in proportion to the number of folks that have this many people under 25 years of age Sunday night. Isn't it great? I'm, uh, I'm excited about the future of First Baptist Church. I want to tell you that for sure. And as you know, these uh, young men and women, several of them, be going to Oregon the 11th. Next Sunday, we'll kind of commission them here, uh, lay hands on them, set them apart in a kind of special time. And I know you've already begun to lift them up. Uh, if you've not been on one of, if you've never been a part of one of these things out that part of the world, it's not, it's incomprehensible. Uh, as far as what can happen and what's going to be involved. And so you may not be as excited as I am, but uh, having done this several times, I'm, I, I, have, I have a uh, great anticipation of what's out before us, both for our church and for the church where we'll be ministering. Now, in the 22nd chapter of the book of Genesis is a, sequ a sequel to the sermon I preached this morning from the book of James, and so if you want to turn to the 22nd chapter of, um, of uh, Genesis and hold the place there, I want us also to look at a verse of Scripture from the passage from which I preached the, the message, Can Faith Without Works Save? And so if you want to turn also to the second chapter of the little epistle of James, I want to read verse 21 before we get to our study tonight. And if you're visiting for the first time, you'll know that we work with a worksheet on Sunday nights and sometimes on Sunday morning. And it helps us kind of as we put together what God's Word says. And I think that I've seen some great response on the part of our people. I think that's why you come on Sunday night is because you respond to just studying God's Word and I'm glad you do. The 21st verse of chapter 2 in James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? I think it's necessary that we mention by way of review this, that something we said this morning, that is, that there seems to be a conflict in the book of James with the great theme of the New Testament, namely justification by faith alone. Martin Luther says that justification by faith only is the article of the standing or falling church. 
And we know that one of the treasured doctrines of the New Testament is that man is justified, that is, he's made right before God, not on the basis of his works, but on the basis of his faith in God's work of redemption in Christ. For by grace are you saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, is that Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 passage. And so is there a conflict? Is there a conflict between James and Romans? And the great theme of Romans is that man is justified. He's made right with God through his faith in Christ. Thou shalt confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, is that great Romans 10.10 passage. So is there a conflict between James and Romans? We mentioned that there are contrasts between James and Romans. One has to do with time. That Paul in Romans is talking about the point of salvation about the root of salvation, and James is talking about the fruit of salvation. Paul is talking about what happens in salvation. James is talking about what happens as the result of genuine salvation. We said there's a contrast in perspective. That is, James is looking at life from man's perspective, and Paul is looking at life from God's perspective. And finally, we said that there was a contrast in terminology that James uses, that Paul and James use the word justification in, a, in different ways. That, ju that Paul uses the word justification and, and defines it like this. Justification is an act by which God declares the sinner righteous while he's in a state of sinning. I say that again. Paul uses the term justification like this. It is an act of God by which he declares the sinner righteous though he is in the state of sinning. We're dressed in his righteousness alone. Imputed to us is the righteousness of Christ. And James uses the, the, the word or the term justification synonymous with validation. So that he's saying, James is saying, that justification, that is, one's works validates, justifies his faith, that is the sense of validation. And a perfect example of it is Abraham. Alan Redpath said, I hope you can remember this, the conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment. The manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. The conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment. The manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. In a moment, in spontaneous with one's faith, in the twinkling of an eye, when man repents of his sin and trusts in Christ, in that moment he is born again. There is the conversion of the soul. There is the rebirth, the new birth in that moment. 
but the manufacture of the saint, that is, the maturing and the developing of the Christian is the task of a lifetime. And sometimes the greatest instrument, the greatest means by which God has to manufacture a saint, to mold him and to shape him to Christ's likeness, the greatest instrument or means by which God can do that is trials. Now, if a person is converted in a moment and the manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime, you see, when one is converted, that's not the end of it. It'd be like a guy standing at the plate and hitting a ball over the fence for a home run and never running the bases, see. When a person is born again, it's like hitting the home run and standing at the plate if he doesn't go beyond there. And the way God gets us beyond there and manufactures us and molds us and shapes us into the likeness of Christ, the greatest way He has to do that often is through manifold trials. There's no greater evidence of that than in the life of Abraham. He's a classic example. Now, if you'll notice in the 22nd chapter of Genesis, beginning at verse 1, it says, Now it came about after these things. Now, if you're halfway a Bible student at all, when you read that term, these things, the things that pops in your mind are, what are these things that he's talking about? After what things? What are the these things that, that God is talking about there as he talks about Abraham? After what things? Well, the answer to that it refers to is the three other crises in the life of Abraham. Those are the three, those are the these things of verse 1. There were four great crises in the life of Abraham that molded him and manufactured him. Three preceded chapter 22, and one is in chapter 22. What are the three that preceded? The first is found in chapter 12, where God told Abraham to leave home. Now notice, not looking back to that tonight, but if you want to follow up in your study, that when God came to Abraham and said, get up and get you out of this country, Abraham was 75 years old. Now, for those of you who feel that you're getting so old that God is not going to be able to do anything in your life, just remember this, that it was after Abraham was 75 that God really began to do a work in his life. That's a good word for those of you who are past 30. Chapter 12, the crises was the crises that came when God said to Abraham to leave home. Alfred Luckett has a marvelous sermon called Marching Off the Map. And he talks about in early history when they had maps that just ran out to the edge there. They hadn't been able to discover what was beyond them. And some people in exploration would just set out to, and, and they'd come to the end of their maps and there'd be land and oceans left for them. And he talks about the great pioneers that just sailed off the map. Abraham just marched off the map. God moved in his life a crisis. The second is in chapter 13. That's not 17, it's 13 first. Chapter 13. It was the crisis that came when God 
separated him from Lot, his nephew. It was really a crisis time, not for Lot only, but for Abraham. The third great crisis came in the 17th chapter of Genesis, and it was where God came to Abraham and talked to him about having a son, and Abraham thought that he was talking about Ishmael, and God told him, I'm not talking about Ishmael, and it was the crisis of where he had to set aside or abandon his cherished plans for Ishmael, his son. And then we come to the fourth great crisis in the life of Abraham, which is our consideration tonight. It's in the 22nd chapter. Now, the, the, um, the uh, material, the text, is so familiar, we're going to hurry right through it, but I think we're going to see some marvelous things here, so hang right in there with me. I hope you brought your Bible. First, notice as you look at your outline, the revelation of the test. And said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son. And um, Abraham said, Well, he's talking about Ishmael. Okay, I'll take Ishmael. Your only son. Well, um, really, he's, um, he, he's my, my only son. He's the only son I have by the other wife, my only son. You love, I love Ishmael, Isaac. You know, God has a way of getting right down to the point so there's no mistake about what he wants us to do. I think sometimes we kind of have, we, we have this little cop-out that we use. Well, I'd like to do what God wants me to do, but I'm not sure that I know what God wants me to do. Listen, that's not God's fault. Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now I want you to notice two or three things about the test. He wanted him to take Isaac, his, his son he loved. I wish that you could... Just imagine that in your mind. If you have a son, it's not hard to imagine it. I can remember as a little boy, as a son, you know, thinking about what a tremendous, what a tremendous, terrible thing, horrible thing this was. Thinking about the trauma that must have been involved in this. Take your son Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, there were several kinds of offerings that the Jews made. But the burn offering was the offering that was consumed. He, he said, in essence, I want you to take your only son and I want him to be consumed in the smoke of a sacrifice. And notice also that Isaac was more than just flesh and blood son. He was the assurance of the promise of God for the Jews. For it was through him that God's promise to bring a nation out of the loins of Abraham was to be accomplished. So not only was the promise of God, but God's word was at stake here for Abraham. God's promise was on the line with regard to Abraham. If I do this, then can I trust God? Take your son, your only son, 
and put him on the altar, the son you love the most, that which you cherish and cling to. Offer it to God as a sacrifice. Notice this. God has a way. Can you remember this? God has a way of putting his finger on the things that mean the most to us. I, I, I want to share this with you. I, I didn't intend to do it, but it it's, it's so illustrates this, and I'm going to try to stay in the time limit, lest I be offered on this altar. <laughs> I, I, uh, I pastored, uh, I was, my, my secretary in Seminole, Texas was a dear, godly woman, one of the best Christian women I've ever met. Her daughter was a journeyman missionary in Africa. I, her name was Irene. You all know her, Irene and Don. And Irene was a journeyman in Africa while I was pastor in Seminole, and I didn't really know her, but when she came back to the States, I got to meet her. She was a tremendous Christian. And when I went to Fort Worth, Irene came back to go to the seminary and join my church at Fort Worth. And every summer, Irene would, would come up here and work at Camp Nunichaha. You may have met Irene Bishaw up there. Some of you went there. can remember her name. And she very much wanted to be married. She wanted a home and a family. She wanted a husband. She wanted to be married. Y'all identify with that, some of you. And uh, she knew that God, she felt God might be calling her to missions. Listen to this story. It so illustrates this. She knew that God, she felt God might be calling her to go back to Africa as a missionary. But she knew that if she committed her life to go back to Africa as a missionary, she probably would never be married. I mean, the pickings are kind of slim, you know, in Africa as far as, <laughs> as, far as uh, eligible husbands. And so one August, while Camp Nani Chaha was going on, she came back for a weekend and came to church and said, Gerald, I want to talk to you. And we went in my office. And she said, um, I, while at camp this year, God has moved in on my life and I've accepted the call to missions. And I said, Irene, what about the plans for marriage? She said, I don't know, Gerald, but I just know that I've got to do what God wants me to do. And he wants me to go to Africa as a missionary. Two weeks later, now folks, not, not two months later, two weeks later, I saw her sitting out in the audience with another guy in our church named Don Walker. Uh, they had never dated. They, this is a true story. They had never been on a date. But during this week after that she was there on that week weekend, she had to go to Alabama to participate in a wedding of a, another person in our church, and Don was also in the wedding for the guy. And on the way to Alabama and on the way back with other friends, they fell in love. And they came into my office two weeks, sitting in the same chair, two weeks, had never been on a date they came to tell me that they were going to get married. And, and I said, well, that's just great. You know, after I woke up, I passed out. I couldn't believe it. And, 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 and this was the question at, that both of them asked. They said, Gerald, we were, Irene said, I was so sure that God was calling me to Africa as a missionary. I've been struggling with this for years. What, what, how, how do you explain that to me? How, how, do you, how do you justify that? The only answer I had, and I think it's a correct answer, is that your plans for the future, your marriage as you wanted it, was your Isaac, 
And until you were ready to offer that on the altar of God, you weren't ready for marriage. God has a way of putting His finger on the things that we want to hold on to, that we cherish the most. And so He said, take your only son, the one you love, and you consume him on the altar. Now look at the response, and that's the exciting thing. There are four aspects of the response. I'll hurry through them. Number one, it was an immediate response. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him. He left before sunrise. Now, if he was going out to receive some great blessing, God said, I want you to go to Mount Moriah. I've got a... I've got a uh, treasure full of gold there, you know, we'd probably get up before sunrise. But when he told him, take his son and offer him as a sacrifice, and he got up before sunrise, and they split the wood, and they were off. I want you to know that one of the greatest enemies to your faith is procrastination. When God says, go, go then. When God speaks to say, I want this of you, do it then, be on your way then. The greatest enemy to your faith and to God's work is procrastination. I wasn't there to hear it, but a friend was telling me about testimony at the seminary of a man 75 years old, the age of Abraham, at the first calling at the seminary who gave his testimony in chapel. Maybe you were there, Lee. He said, I received the call of God when I was a young man to preach and I've spent 50 years running from God in rebellion and I finally surrendered and I'm here answering the call of God at age 75 and I lament the fact that I've wasted 50 years of my life. Then the appeal to the young people there. If God is calling you to the task, do it today. And so he got up early, before sunrise, and he split the wood, and away he went. Secondly, it was a response that was characterized by faith. Look at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place. Oh, that's just dripping with pathos. Look at that. He's traveled with, for three days with his son that he's going to offer on an altar. And then one morning he raises his eyes and in the distance he saw it. He saw Mount Moriah. He saw the place of sacrifice. He saw the valley, the place of death. Can you imagine what went through his mind? But look at verse 5. Look at this. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go up yonder, and we will worship. Oh, what a tremendous, what a tremendous response. Going there to sacrifice his son, and he calls it worship. For really, what is it to worship God but to do his will? What is the greatest worship? Jesus said it like this, the greatest worship is to do the will of my Father. Worship is not coming to church on Sunday morning, singing the hymn and going through the motions. You can do that and not worship. Worship 
is responding to the presence and the will of God. And we will worship. But notice the second. And he said, I'll come back. No, he didn't. He said, we will come back. up Isaac and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son in an annihilation of the promise it was he to whom it was said in Isaac your descendants shall be called and he listen to this are you listening and he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead now you and I have problems struggle with if, if there is truth in the resurrection of the dead. And we have, we have Easter to look back on. And Abraham had never seen anybody raised from the dead, but he had a faith that believed that God could do it. Now I want you to think this morning, tonight of the biggest problem you have in your life. I want you to think of the biggest task that is utterly impossible. Some of you might have a dozen of them. Just pick out one. A task utterly impossible in your life and believe that God is able to accomplish it. It wasn't a bitter walk that he made up that garden, up, up to that Mount Moriah. It was an adventure of faith. And what he must have been saying to himself as he went there, I wonder how God's going to bring this. I wonder how he's going to handle this. Faith, somebody said, is seeing the invisible, believing the unbelievable, knowing the unknowable, so that you can achieve the impossible. Number three, the third response is in verse 6 through 8. It is a response that is based on the character of God. Look at verses 6 through 8. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. That tells me that Isaac at least was a teenager. He could carry the load. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God will provide for himself the lamb. Now just parenthetically, what does that remind you of? What, what does that remind you of? Does it remind you of Jesus? Now, Abraham was not only confronted, remember this, he was not only confronted with the reality of the, of the test, he was confronted with the reality of the character of God. And when I thought on this, I thought of this verse of Scripture in the New Testament. Listen to this beautiful verse. No temptation has overtaken you. Now that word temptation is the word in the New Testament for test, no test has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, underscore that, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able, 
but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. Under, underscore the word also. Now what this verse says to me, a couple of things. One, it says that God's, God provides the test, but He also provides the way of escape. And not one without the other. And the reason we can believe that is in that little phrase I wanted you to underscore, God is faithful. Now whenever you confront or are confronted by a test as Abraham was, you just remember your response is to be based on the character of God. He can be trusted. He is faithful. I don't know, you can get excited about that. That's a great idea for Notice number four. The fourth response was, it was thorough and complete. Look at verse 9. Then he came to the place of which God had told him, and Abram built the altar there and ranged the wood, browned his son, Isaac. Notice that I see no evidence of a struggle. You know what that means? It means that the relationship between Isaac and his father was a beautiful relationship. Watch this. Isaac trusted his father just like his father trusted God. Now there has to be a correlation. There has to be a correlation in that. Your child will have the same kind of relationship with you that you have with God. And it also parenthetically just leaps out at me that the kind of relationship that Isaac had with Abraham his father was a, was a foregleam, was a shadow of the kind of relationship that Jesus had with his father. Now, look at verse 10. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. It was a thorough, complete response. He has the knife, and he's ready, to, he's ready to slay him. Now look, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am, don't miss me. Like you're waving at these, you're lost in a desert, and a search plane coming over. Here I am, don't miss me. Notice that when the words, when, when a person's name is repeated, it means that that person is respected. Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. Now here we are, and this is why this is a sequel to the book of James. For now I know that you fear God. Now I want you to underscore that, and then I want us to flip back, holding the place, I want us to flip back to the book of James chapter 2. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? In other words, when he was responding in faith, the fruit of his faith was absolute obedience to the will of God. God said, now I know that you fear God. That is, your works have now validated, have now justified your faith. Abraham's faith, 
Abraham's works didn't save him. His fruit, his works justified his faith, that is, validated it. Now I know that you believe that you fear God because I've seen this tremendous response of your faith. And that's just like beams of light. Now let's wind up our worksheet and wind up this sermon. You agree you're, you're, that'll be all right with you, won't it? Finish this thing up. There are two rewards. Notice them. Reward one, he spared his son, verse 12. Two rewards of God. He spared his son, verse 12. Second, he provided a substitute, verse 13. He spared his son, he provided a substitute. Now, I've never been to what some of us refer to as the holy lands in plural, quote, unquote. I've never been to Israel, but I am told that Mount Moriah in the Old Testament is the same place or as near the same place as Golgotha. So he did provide a substitute. Now there are three important lessons. Lessons for life. Number one. Boy, I want you to get these. What you retain, what you retain for self, God will ask you to release to him. What you retain for self, God will ask you to release to him. Now, I didn't say he'd make you release it, but he will ask you. And sometimes his asking, you know, it's kind of like, kind of like pressure. As a matter of fact, the tighter you hold on to that that you don't want to give God, the more painful is the release. The tighter you hold on, the more you hold on to that which you refuse to allow God to have. Whether it's your marriage, whether it's your job, whether it's money, whether it's friends, whatever, the whole harder you cling to it, the more painful is the release. Number two, what you release to God, He will replace with something better. What you release to God, He will replace with something better. Now, the sacrifice that God provided for himself at Mount Moriah was much greater than the sacrifice Abraham was to offer. Right? Number three, whenever God replaces, whenever God replaces, he also rewards. 
it's an amazing thing to me when I discover this that God gives us back more than He takes. Have you ever noticed that? He rewards. He gives on top. He, did, he doesn't just give back and replace. He gives that and more. What does God want you to bring to the altar tonight? What does He want? you to give to him folks not tomorrow not next week but immediately he wants it would you bow with me in prayer oh what a what a tremendous what a tremendous opportunity to do what God wants us to do. In a minute, I want us to sing together, just as I am, and I'll let the organist and pianist find that. And Jim, you come and lead us in a minute. We don't need to have. We don't have to turn to that. I'm going to lead us in prayer tonight, and I want you to come and place before God, release to God what He wants you to release to Him. Heavenly Father, you have a way of just putting your finger on the things in our life that we jealously and selfishly cling to and possess. Father, all you want is for us to come with empty hands and a yielded life so that you can replace our selfishness with your selflessness. You, you take our hatred and give us your love. You take our deceit and give us your honesty. Take our indifference and give us your compassion. Lord, help us to release to you that tonight which stands between us and a walk and a fellowship. God, I pray that you'll speak to us now and say to our hearts, this is what I want, this is who I want, this is what I want from you. And if there are those here tonight, young men and women, that you'd have to preach the gospel, to be missionaries, to go to the ends of the earth, Father, with a message God called them. And there are some of us tonight younger than Abraham that you would call and I pray that we'll just respond in the same kind of spirit the same kind of attitude this is my prayer in Jesus name and for his sake now in a spirit of prayer would you stand and we'll invite you to come right now as, our, as we sing together
prayer and we'll be dismissed. God, I thank you for Jim and for Roger who've come to say, help me to pray. Help me to place on the altar this that is in my life that God wants. Thank you for that commitment, that 